Thank you, Megan. This morning, we are kicking off a new series. And I love starting a new series because whenever we start a new series, it kind of gives us all a chance to hit the reset button. And that's what we're doing today. We're calling this series Mosaic because we are looking at the four different gospels that make up our perception of who Jesus is. All four gospels were written by different authors. They each had a unique purpose in writing. So our purpose for the next four weeks, for the next month, we're going to look at kind of an overview. This is not a, a deep dive. I would love, love, love to encourage you. Hey, grab a study Bible, grab a version reading plan to go a little bit deeper into the purpose of all four gospels. I'm sure you can find a one week summary of each of the four gospels on, on version That'll give you a bigger picture than we can cover in 30 ish minutes here. Um, but this is kind of an overview of all four gospels so that we can understand what it is that each author by the inspiration of the Holy spirit wanted us to know about who Jesus is. There are four gospels, but one story. And that's the mosaic that we are going to be focusing on for the next four weeks as we see how each gospel reveals different aspects of who Jesus is. So naturally, since we are looking at the four gospels um, in four weeks, we are going to start with John. So <laughs> we're, we're starting with John and, and he, it, John is the last of the four gospels, both in the New Testament, the way that it, that it comes. But chronologically, John is the last of the four Gospels as well. John stands apart from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, which is just the fancy word for the same. Most of the content in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, it's the same between the three. But then John has so much unique content. The content, the messages are largely repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is unique both in the tone of the book, but also the content. So before we dive in, I want to show you that I'm not the only one that thinks this. And I meant to put these quotes on the screen and I forgot to. So you'll have to listen to me and you can go home and Google it because I promise I'm not making this up. Um, St. Augustine once said, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the gospel of John accomplishes. He's saying that if you are not yet a Christian or if you are a new Christian, John is the perfect place to start. Its content is accessible for everyone. But also if you are a seminarian, if you are a theologian, if you are a mature Christian, you can read the book of John and still grow deeper in your faith by studying this book because you will get something new and deeper every time. Martin Luther, he, he once said of the book of John, he said, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John were to escape him, Christianity would be saved. Martin Luther said the theology about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in Romans and John are so robust that if we lost the rest of the scriptures, which would be a tragedy, but our faith would remain largely the same because of the robust nature of the theology in these books. So over the next 25, 30 ish minutes, we are going to cover a very, you know, 30,000 foot view of what it was that John was trying to accomplish when he wrote the gospel of John. So I'm going to pray. And then we are diving in. God, you are good and you are faithful. And you have given us your word 
so that we may have life, so that we may have life in abundance. Father, you have given us your son so that when we believe in him, we will have eternal life. Father, I thank you this morning that we get to study your word. And I thank you that in studying it, we can further our belief in your love for us and the purpose that you have for us. God bless us now as we look to your word. And it's in Jesus' name for his glory that we pray. Amen. Do you remember that feeling you would get the, uh, the first day of class? The, the syllabus would get handed out and you would just pray that nowhere on that syllabus you would see the phrase research paper, right? I don't remember you know, what grade it was that it started happening way too often. But you, yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I am in a phase of life now where I'm going back and doing school. And I ha- it's nothing but papers at this point. And it's just like in seventh grade when we were told it's all about um, your thesis statement. Your thesis statement is going to direct the whole paper. Your thesis statement is going to guide the whole paper. I'm in a program right now where I am in my fourth out of four classes where I'm doing all of these projects based on one, one single thesis statement. So for the past six months, I have lived with a one sentence statement and it is just obnoxious. I can't wait to get away from it at this point because it's kind of all encompassing. But we were taught in, you know, whatever grammar class we were in, in middle school or high school, that the thesis statement is the point of the paper. It is what you are arguing for, is what you are attempting to prove. Everything in the paper has to support the thesis statement. I'm not an English professor, but I'm assuming that's still what is being taught to our 13 and 14 year olds, that you need to find a thesis statement, you need to prove a thesis statement. One of the reasons that I love the book of John so much is that John makes no qualms about what he is trying to do in this book. There is no mystery. There is no intrigue. There is a very clear and decisive thesis statement. He comes out and says in the passage that Megan just read for us, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said, hey, now that you've read my book, here is why, because this is chapter 20, there's 21 chapters in the book of John, but 95, 97% of the way through the book, John says, by the way, here is why I wrote all this stuff down. I didn't just write down my favorite moments. I didn't write down just the highlights. I wrote down the stuff that I thought would cause you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. When John began to write this book years after the other gospels had been written, not just years, decades after the other gospels had been circulated, he said, I need to write something different. I need to write something unique so that I can spurn people towards belief. He was writing to convince his readers that was at the end of the first century, but it's also you and me. He was writing to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And because Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, we may have eternal life by believing in him. The whole gospel of John, all 21 chapters is an argument that John is making. 
He is presenting evidence. It's like he's in a courtroom. He knew that the people who would read his book didn't get to witness the things that he did. He knew that the people that would read his book didn't get to experience all of the things that he did. So he goes into great detail to try to convince us, his readers, that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. The whole point in John's writing is that we would believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We live in a culture that is all about belief. We, we love belief. Everybody believes in something. There was, and this is a long time ago, but I remember, you know, the pastors of America being super upset because Oprah came out and said, you know, the important thing is that you believe. It doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe. All that matters is that you believe in something. And people are like, no, that's wrong. People are like, yay, we believe in believing. That's not what John is saying. John is not saying, um, I want you to believe in belief. He says, I want you to believe in something very specific. There's a difference between a general belief or a general hope and a very specific belief. During my teenage years, I was a nerd. I know you're shocked by that. And during those years, there was a popular show um, called The X-Files. You might remember it. All of us nerds loved it. We could all sing the theme song right now, but or not sing, but whistle the theme song. Um, but then, you know, YouTube would take down the video for copyright stuff. So nobody online watched. So we're not going to do that. But one of the popular phrases from the X-Files was simply, I want to believe. It was this idea that in a world of skeptics, somebody has to be a believer. Wouldn't it be nice to be that believer. Oh, I just wish I could believe. I really want to believe. This is kind of a prayer that Peter prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But in this cultural sense, it's a, no, no, I just want to believe in something. I want to feel something. I want to experience something. I want to believe in something. In a little bit more modern television, um, Ted Lasso, pretty much the whole marketing of the show has been about this idea of believe. By the way, 61 Emmy nominations in three seasons. That's incredible. Um, but they actually sell t-shirts that say, I believe in believe. I don't know what I believe in, but I believe, right? I believe in this belief, this sense that, you know, things are going to work out. Things are going to be okay. I just believe. The idea that belief in and of itself has enveloped postmodern thought is not what John was targeting. John was not saying, hey, you got to have hope. Hey, I want you to have a, a belief that something good has happened. I want you to put it out into the universe. That's not what John was saying. John was not arguing for belief for the sake of belief. He did not write so that his readers would cling to a vague sense of hope, but rather so that they would have a sure and certain hope that is only available through Jesus. We're going to look at this passage again. Um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. When you read through the book of John, there are seven miracles that John highlights. He doesn't refer to them as miracles. He says that they are signs that Jesus is who he says he was. There are signs pointing, kind of like a road sign points you to where you want to go. John says there are seven signs that he recorded to point people towards the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. He says, but these are written, these seven signs, these seven miracles that I talked about are written down so that you may believe specifically that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said that his epistle exists 
so that we would believe in a very specific fact. We would believe first that Jesus is the Messiah. And second, because we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we would have life in his name. Most scholars agree that the internal evidence in the book of John points to uh, the author being John, the son of Zebedee. He was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. Whenever you read about the disciples, there's always this list of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. James and John, two brothers, and Peter were like this inner circle. James um, was the first martyr that we have in the book of Acts. It's not, not a pretty story, but you know, um, that was John's brother. John's brother was executed for his faith. And yet about 50 years after that execution, John is writing us this letter saying, no, no, no. It is worth it that you believe. It is worth it that you follow. It has cost my family dearly, but I want you to believe and I want you to follow. So John is one of Jesus' disciples. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved throughout the gospel. Um, this book is probably written around AD 90, making John rather old if Jesus was crucified in about 33 to 35 AD. John, it is assumed, was the youngest of the 12 disciples. And so now at this point, he has outlived everybody else. And at the end of his life, he is going through with this carefully curated list of events that he wants people to know and understand so that they may believe. The interesting thing about the thesis statement that we've read several times, I'm writing this down so that you will believe, is that he makes that statement at the end of the book. But the statement is evident from the very, very beginning of the book. From the very beginning of his writing, his purpose is very, very clear. In John chapter one, we read this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John starts off his book by saying, right from the beginning, there's something that you need to know. Jesus is God. He has always been God. He will always be God. In verse one, John gives Jesus the title, the word. Words are powerful. We know that, you know, sticks and stones and all of those things. But we know that words are powerful. Words can influence people. Words can comfort people. But John is not referring to Jesus as the word to point to the difference that a kind word can make in someone's bad day. John is not saying Jesus is the word to demonstrate the power of a motivational speech. He is pointing to something much more significant to that. He is calling back to the old Testament where we read things like the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth in Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. it was this word of God that caused creation. Psalm 107, he sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from the pit creation and salvation. When we read the old Testament, we see that creation and salvation are each through the word of God. God reveals his power and will through his word. There is no greater revelation of the character and nature of the father than through the person of Jesus. Jesus reveals God's mind. Jesus expressed God's will. Jesus displays God's perfection. Jesus demonstrates God's heart. The gospel of God of John begins with a phrase that sounds familiar in the beginning. We know that from in the beginning in Genesis, but John says in the beginning was the word. Jesus was the power of God. 
Jesus was the force of creation. Genesis 1-1 opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John, at the very beginning of his gospel, is connecting Jesus with creation. He's saying, this is not a new phenomenon that showed up on the scene. Because remember, John is writing this in 90-ish AD. There have been Christ followers all over the known world at this point. They've gone as far east as India. They've gone as far west as Spain. And there's some heresies starting to creep into the early church. And John says, here's what you need to know. Jesus always has been and always will be. Jesus was at creation. In fact, he existed before creation. He existed before the world began, before there was time. We could go back to the very beginning of creation and Jesus would be there. We could go back before creation and Jesus was there with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is this kind of thing that Jesus talked about himself. The night that Jesus was arrested, John was just off to the side as Jesus was praying in the garden. Remember, Peter, James, and John, they kept falling asleep as Jesus was praying, but they were just you know, a few yards away from Jesus. John heard Jesus pray this prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. John was eavesdropping, rightfully so, because Jesus told him to stay up and pray. As Jesus talked to the Father about being with him, present at creation, present before the world existed. Genesis 1-1 contains no hint of the creation of God. And here in John 1-1, John says, there is no creation of Jesus. He is God. He has been God. He always will be. Jesus shares his nature with the Father. The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, he is the same character and quality of God. Everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about Jesus. In verse 1, we find a precisely worded statement about Jesus that leads us to only one conclusion. Jesus Christ is God. That's what John wants us to know from the very beginning of his gospel. This phrase provokes critical, uh, uh, proves, proves critical in distinguishing Christian faith from other religions of the world. When Jehovah's Witnesses meet to discuss their, uh, met to discuss their religion and they, they picked a translation of scripture, they settled on something called the New World Translation. And if you have never looked at this translation or you pick one up thinking, hey, this looks like a Bible, this must be the Bible. Um, they translate this verse very, very differently. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word wa was a God. They add that little uh, article, a. He wasn't like a full God, but he was like there with him. He was like a junior God to be. Does that small change matter? Does that one little word matter? Absolutely. By adding the little word a, they're making a statement that Jesus is somehow less than fully God. And John says, no, 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 no. Jesus has always been and will always be fully God. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods and that he was the half brother of Lucifer. Buddhism teaches that Jesus is not God, but rather an enlightened man like the Buddha. Islam teaches that Jesus was merely a man and a prophet who was inferior to Muhammad. From the beginning of his gospel, John argues that Jesus Christ is not one of many gods, but that he is the God himself. As God, 
Jesus was not only physically present at creation, but he was active in creation. Verse three says he created all things. John shows this uh, very specific phrase in the Greek that we kind of, we kind of lose a little bit. But when we see this idea of all things, it's this idea of opening a warehouse and saying he made all of this. It's not just the big 30,000 foot view that we're kind of taking of this gospel this morning and saying, yeah, he made that like what you're flying over. Hey, look down there. But it's like, no, no, look at the intricate details of all of these things. This big giant thing. Yeah, he made this, this tiny intricate thing. Yeah, he made that. Jesus made all things is what John is trying to convey. However, John chose this word that says, look at the detail, check each and every one of them out because Jesus made all of them from the largest to the smallest. John says from the gate, Jesus is God. He is the creator of everything. And then he puts on his best late night infomercial voice, right? You're watching the OxyClean commercial, you know, because you can't sleep or the, you know, 50 greatest love songs CD. And what do they say? But wait, there's more, right? It's not just that he was with God at the beginning and he's always been there. He'll always be there. But then he says, there is more. Not only is he the force and the power behind creation, not only is he co-eternal with the father, but he says in verse four, in him was life. And that light was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's almost as if John had been asked time and time again, John, if this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth was really God, then why was he here? What was the point? Why did he feel it necessary to come to earth? And John says, oh, that, that's really simple. Two reasons, life and light. Jesus came to give us life, to reconcile us with God, changing both our present condition and our future destination. Life, eternal life then, but life abundant now. How do you receive spiritual life? How do you receive eternal life then and abundant life now? By placing your faith and trust in Jesus. When Jesus was talking to Lazarus's sister at Lazarus's grave, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, will live. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Why did Jesus come to earth? To give people life. Jesus came to call people from death to life, to a living and vibrant relationship with God through faith in him. Those who believe, that's what he just said in John 11, those who believe he makes alive. Verse five says that Jesus also brought light into a spiritually dark world. He brought life, but he also brought light. When he came he said in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Last Saturday, um, we met with a realtor in Arkansas. I promise the Larson family is not moving to Arkansas. Um, but we went to a town about 45 minutes away from where Melissa's dad and stepmom live to look at this awesome old abandoned movie theater. As you can see, it did not look great, um, but it's been on the market for months without any serious buyers. And here's the thing. The Savage Theater in Boonville, Arkansas is for sale for <clears throat> $28,000. It is not in Safety Harbor, Florida, clearly. 
$28,000. And so this little town where it's located is like a kind of up or rebounding town with some cute restaurants and shops. And so we drove about 45 minutes from Delaware, Arkansas to Boonville, Arkansas to meet the people that had this theater that are trying desperately to offload it. Um, and we, we had lunch and then we went and we were, we were touring this old theater. No one had been in for months. And so the power was off. And as we walked up to the theater, we thought, okay, yeah, it needs some paint. And yeah, some things need to be replaced. But look at the potential. I mean, 1940s movie theater, $28,000. Melissa's stepsister was looking at it. She's kind of looking for a side hustle. Wouldn't it be a cool business to reopen this awesome theater? And as we started to, to walk up to it, and as we you know, saw it online and stuff, all we could think about was the potential. What could be? We thought about family movie nights. We thought about, wouldn't it be cool to play video games on that giant screen? Um, how cool of summer jobs could the kids have by going to stay with their grandparents and their aunts and uncles in the summer. That would be awesome. But then we got some light. Yeesh. Once we had light, the rosy images we had of the future quickly went away. Because in the light, we saw mold. In the light, we saw rot. In the light, we saw standing water. The light caused us to see how bad it truly was. When we talk about Jesus as light, we mean this in two ways. First, he talks about light shining in the darkness, a city set on a hill. Look, I'm an example. Look, there's the difference. Here is what you can aspire to be. But also, I'm going to expose the rot. I'm going to expose the mold. I'm going to expose all of the things that make it as it shouldn't be so that you realize that life could and should be better if you have life in me. Jesus came to be those things. He came to give hope and direction as the light of the world, but he also came as the light to reveal what was hidden and what wasn't working so that we would see our need for a savior. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to wander around in darkness or in the despair of sin, but you can enjoy the light of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Jesus offers life and light. Throughout John's gospel, we see this ongoing struggle between light and darkness. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's being opposed by those who are in darkness. John says from the beginning of his book that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. He says, the light that shines. When in John chapter one, verse five, when John is talking, he said, in the beginning was, past tense, in verse one. But by the time we get to verse five, he says, a light that shines, present tense. The light is still shining in the darkness. Then he says, the darkness did not overcome it. This is an ongoing thing. John is using verbs that signify a complete action. The darkness has done everything it could to blot out the light. It schemed, it plotted, and it ran out of ideas. No matter what the darkness does, the light will continue to shine and it will not be overcome. What an awesome and empowering truth that is for us. Jesus Christ is still shining in the dark world. So why did John write this book? 
He wrote it so that we would believe so that we would believe that Jesus is God and that we would experience life and light through him. By contrast, it is impossible to have life apart from him. The same question that Jesus asked Martha in the passage that we just read in John chapter 11, when Jesus is standing at Lazarus's grade grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do you believe this? Because that is why John wrote this book. So that we would ask ourselves the question, do I believe this? And if our answer is yes, yes, I do. We can experience the life and the light that he promises. We can experience eternal life then, abundant life now, and we can experience the light that shines in the world around us, but also illuminates what is wrong in the world around us. That is what we get to experience by simply answering the question that Jesus asks in John chapter 11. So as we wrap up, as I pray for us, let me just ask, do you believe this? Do you believe what John intended that you would believe when he wrote his book? That Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that in believing in him, we may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? God bless us now. Bless us as we sing together, as we fellowship together. God bless us as we give. Thank you for the ways that you have continued to bless and sustain our church. Lord, I pray that you would fill our church with people who can answer that question with, yes, I believe. And that you would cause us to go out into the world around us and demonstrate that light that we have because of Jesus. I pray that you would cause us to go and live a life abundantly that causes others to ask what it is that causes us to have the hope and the belief that we do. And that our answer to them would not be some vague sense of belief for the sake of belief, but rather that we can say, we believe on the name of Jesus, the word of God who was with God at the beginning, who has given us life, abundant life, eternal, and a light that shines in darkness. Father, how grateful we are for your word. How grateful we are to know your son and experience the love that you have for us through him. Lord, may we now live for his glory. Bless us now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, next week, we're gonna continue this series uh, with Mark, which also does not make sense chronologically, but that's where we're going next week. So I hope you will come back. I hope you will bring someone with you.